This is the Grin Podcast, and I am Hindul Sen Gupta. Joining me from the East Coast today, I am delighted to welcome Professor Jeffrey Long, who teaches religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College at Pennsylvania. Professor Long, welcome to the Grin Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to discuss with Professor Long, and of course, both he and I are in. lockdown in india and america but it's the right moment to discuss something that we are faced with all of us in that rare moment when a global pandemic the covid-19 has forced humanity to be at home and indeed face oneself professor long it is a unique moment isn't it when um, even during war people are not really locked up in their homes in the manner that we are today um this is a bit of a psychologically for our inner self a unique moment isn't it yes it is uh it's uh, enforced solitude and uh, this is something that uh in fact uh, humans are such social beings that for many centuries many thousands of years people who've wanted solitude have had to seek it they've had to wander out into the forest or to the mountains to be away from humanity and be with themselves Uh now we all have to be with ourselves uh whether we like it or not. Uh and so uh it really makes us confront ourselves as who we are uh without all of our sort of social niceties uh, in place. And in a moment like this when we are not only at home facing ourselves we're also confronted with death all around and death by a sort of invisible enemy isn't it? And that makes it doubly difficult what does it mean in this moment when many are once again being inclined to ask deep questions about their life and indeed about god what does it mean for our journey into our inner self and our realization of the idea of god that we are faced with ourselves at home in this pandemic Well, this this juxtaposition which you have mentioned is a very powerful one of isolation combined with the fear of death and the strong possibility of death. And of course, this is something that's with us all of the time. Uh we never know uh when we might die. We never know when the time might come. And uh, in fact, the Buddha very famously said uh, in the Dhammapada that uh, uh for one who is mindful of death, there is no enmity and if we reflect on what he meant when he said that uh my understanding my interpretation of that verse is that if we're constantly aware that death could come at any time then we're not going to waste our time in petty conflicts with other people uh we're not going to waste our time uh fighting and hating one another because the end may come soon and we want to be prepared and in many ways life is a preparation for death and an important part of this preparation of course is also knowing who we are and spending time in solitude and so this uh, particular moment in history creates a real opening i think for spiritual awakening because if we if we have this uh situation where we're facing the ultimate fear that that most people feel uh, being the fear of death and we have the time to sit and reflect by ourselves on that then uh people could become very gloomy and morbid but uh, alternatively it's an opportunity to see well what is really real and what does really matter and what is really important 
And what is really real then, do you think people might conclude? Because there are other changes happening, right? Apart from our isolation and our being confronted with death, there's also a material change. One of the conversations many people seem to be having is how much of the stuff that I'm surrounded with at home did I ever really need? Because we are confronted, Professor, not only by ourselves, literally in the mirror, but we are also confronted in our homes, stuck in our homes, by all the stuff we have gathered over the years, isn't it? And that surely forces us to do a sort of material, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it forces us to understand, to try and understand why we have gathered all this material, this stuff around us. That's right. That's absolutely correct. And uh, you can look at that in a couple of different ways. Uh, For those of us who are a little bit privileged, uh, we are able to work from home. We're able to be here with our stuff. And as you say, we can reflect on and say, why why did we accumulate this? Why is this important? And uh, there are also people who are less privileged who who uh, are uh, whose lives are even more fragile now because uh, they're losing jobs, they're losing uh, their financial resources. And so this combined fragility, both of our material objects and our material livelihood, combined with the real possibility of death, uh, this really raises the question, well, what does really matter and what, what is really important? And there are, again, two really, at least two ways we can think about this. If we take what I would call a materialistic perspective and say, well, we're only on Earth for a short time, uh, this life is all we have, all we can do is really enjoy our things and enjoy ourselves, and then we die, and that's the end. Uh, a lot of people are drawn to that view. However, uh, it's not very comforting, I would, I would suggest, uh, at a time like this. Because, uh, you know, how, how much can you enjoy these things if, if you know uh, death could come at any time? Or depending on how long the lockdown lasts, people find that they're eventually bored with all their material things, right? You can only uh, read your books and, and watch uh, your shows and, uh, you know, uh, listen to your music so many times and then you know, the mind becomes restless. Uh, I sometimes like to say that our desires are infinite. So only that which is infinite can really satisfy them. And so I think we, we eventually reach a point where we say, no, this, this materialistic perspective is not really sufficient to keep us going from day to day and from moment to moment. And then I think is when the spiritual life really begins because we start to inquire into ourselves. Like you said, you know, what is really real? What is really important? Who am I? Why am I in this world? Uh, what is there beyond this life? And the idea that you know there is nothing and that this is it—that's uh, that's a very cold and cruel universe. Now, of course, a skeptic could argue, well, maybe the universe is very cold and cruel. But then, uh, why do we love one another? Why do we support each other? Why are so many people sacrificing so much and and risking so much to help others? And it's not only for financial reward. It's uh, uh, there's this sense that there is an inherent value in our existence. And so when we kind of dig into, well, what is the source of that inherent value? That's when we can begin to meditate, to sort of shut out everything else, go within and find that value in a very direct and powerful way. Professor Long, it seems to me we are also in a unique moment because if we look at human history, for most parts, people had some sort of a inner life 
even if that meant you went to a temple you know once a week once a day or you went to church every sunday or you went to the mosque every friday something there was something that most people had and a vast number of people in the world maybe a majority of people no longer have that mooring at all there is no space for an inner life at all is this crisis making us realize the what we have lost the lack of um, uh, an inner life and what we have lost because of the of of that lack of an inner life i think it's forcing us to and uh, i would predict and in fact you could see this already happening there is a reawakening of interest in spirituality and uh, i think much more intensely so now because the need is so urgent uh, again the the fragility of life the possibility of death these are always with us but this period of time is marked by a very intense confrontation with these facts a confrontation which we really can't avoid and of course people can try to avoid you know they can drink and so forth and try to find distractions but at the end of the day they're still there with themselves and the traditional religious institutions have i think many people uh, have found that uh, they're no longer really accessible perhaps because they're excessively dogmatic on certain issues uh, or because the institution might be seen as corrupt um or or maybe corrupt in many cases and so this is making people turn away from you know maybe the traditional type of um temple mosque church synagogue and more towards a, an individualistic uh, path and i feel that what we're seeing here is a, a heightening of of certain things that again are really always the case uh, there's a great expression of mahatma gandhi that i'm very fond of uh, it's it's not one of the more well known expressions but uh, and i actually saw a quote from swami vivekananda today that is very similar it says there are in fact as many religions as there are human beings and we each have our own path and even if you go into a religious community people who say well we're all hindus or we're all christians or we're all muslims or whichever tradition it might be when you start asking people well what does it really mean every person is going to give you a somewhat different answer and sometimes a very different answer so this situation and of course now we're physically isolated from many of our centers of worship so uh, it's really requiring us to find that spirituality within ourselves and develop those resources uh which in normal times we might have gone you know to someone else uh for uh and uh it's it's really accelerating the pace as you say of uh, this kind of alienation from traditional religion which is already underway uh it's it's pushing that to another whole level uh because of the isolation and if people do try to find this or refine this inner life so to speak regain this inner life what do you think people would find there you know what is to be found there at a moment of great insecurity at a moment of great unhappiness in many parts of the world uh, of great uh, you know turmoil what would people find if they go within rather than going without well for this i can only speak from experience and my perspective is going to be biased and it's going to reflect uh the particular path that i've been following uh but uh, since you've asked i'm i'm happy to share it but in my experience if we sit very quietly and close our eyes so there are no visual distractions sit in a quiet place so there are no auditory distractions sit quietly alone close your eyes and then 
you've shut out the outer distractions. Now you start shutting out the inner distractions. Remove your attention from whatever thoughts are bothering you. Right? Sometimes people think meditation is thinking very deeply about something, but in fact, in many ways, it's the opposite. It's as uh, Patanjali says in the Yoga Sutra, it's uh, Chitta Vritti Nirodha. It's the calming of the waves of the mind. So you take your attention away from your thoughts, whatever's worrying you. This needs to be done gently. Uh, I often say gently, but firmly. Uh, the middle path, to use a term from Buddhism, uh, that uh, if, if we do it too gently, we start following our thoughts again and we're just daydreaming, which is also a nice activity, but it's not this real going within that I'm talking about. So you firmly, but then also not excessively firmly either, because people can create a lot of stress within themselves. They think, oh, I'm bad at meditation and, and, and thoughts of that kind. So think of the thoughts as almost like clouds in the sky and visualize a breeze just gently blowing them away. And eventually those clouds just, they, they move on and they're, uh, they're sort of up in the sky and you're down on the ground uh, with your eyes closed with yourself and you just let the thoughts go. What is left when we don't have our sensory in, uh, inputs and we don't have these inner thoughts, this inner monologue going? Well, we might expect it's just a blank, right? Well, then that would just be nothingness. But that's not what I've experienced. What I've experienced is that that is a very joyful state. There's a deep bliss that wells up within oneself when you meditate, when you just sit and when you set aside everything else. It's a very blissful state. It's a very joyful state. Um, I have a good friend who's a Buddhist monk and he taught a group of my students uh, a short meditation. And uh, uh, the next day uh, I asked them how they felt during the meditation. And one of them said something very, uh, very cute. He said, uh, I, it was happy, but weird. <laughs> and then we all laughed. He said, what do you mean by happy, but weird? But I understood what he meant right away. It's, it's a very blissful state, but it's different from our normal state of happiness because our normal state of happiness is caused by something outside of us. So someone calls us on the phone, an old friend or someone we love, and we have a good conversation and say, okay, that's good. I feel happy or uh, we do some good deed and we feel that you know we've done some service and we feel happy or uh, we enjoy a good meal is okay that was really a, a lovely uh, lovely dosa I just had right and we feel happy but this inner happiness has no cause it is the joy of just being and it's a joyful state and in the Upanishads they call it Anantaram Satchit Anandam, that is infinite being, consciousness, and bliss. That this is our true nature. It's an unlimited joy. And so the mistake we usually make is thinking that we need to do something to be happy or achieve something to be happy. And sure, we can do things and achieve things and enjoy those things, but they're all impermanent. They're all going to pass away. And this coronavirus situation, of course, is the very dramatic reminder to us of that, that all of this can pass away very quickly. Uh, we can lose our lives, or even if we're very fortunate and, and survive this, um, we, we're still cut off from many of other people. Uh, and, uh, you know, finding that bliss within oneself gives you the courage to then face all of these various experiences. You come out of your meditation, you're refreshed, you, you've touched the core of your being. And I find it to be a very blissful experience. And uh, people in the various traditions who teach meditation have said the same thing. 
And uh, so I, I would invite people to just trust in that. Just try it, right? There's no harm to be gained or no harm to, you know, be risked from just trying it. Um, and now we have all the time in the world, right? Because of social isolation. So sit with yourself, turn off the mind, you know, first turn off the TV and, you know, don't, you know, don't turn off the grin podcast. Listen to that first, then, turn, <laughs> then turn, then turn everything off. Turn off Netflix and, though. Turn off. Yeah. Turn on, turn on Netflix, you know, and, uh, um, be quiet within yourself and it's a very joyful state and most people don't realize they're carrying all of this bliss and joy within them uh, in the Vedanta society we call this a, this a divine potential that's in everyone and the more you tap into it the more you will want to tap into it and it will become a daily habit and I have found throughout my life I'm 51 years old now or this body is 51 years old I don't mind saying that and uh, I have meditated off and on for over 30 years and uh, very seriously for the last 20 years and I find that the periods of my life when I do this practice every day I'm mentally and physically healthier my frame of mind is positive and it doesn't make all of life's problems go away but it makes them easier to handle and uh, because you know that there is this space within you that cannot be destroyed or impaired in any way by anything else that happens. And uh, in fact, I'm, I'm sure you want to ask another another question, but I'll just quickly narrate something that happened to me a few months ago. Uh, I, I was at a conference in San Diego. Uh, I was I went there very eager to, I was supposed to present three papers. And I was very excited to see my friends and network with other scholars and talk with publishers, a big conference. I went there and within about an hour and a half of getting off the airplane, I slipped and fell and broke my ankle and uh, was picked up by the ambulance, taken to the hospital, and I spent the entire conference in the hospital with a broken ankle. And uh, I uh, uh, had to uh, call my wife uh, uh, here in Pennsylvania and say, uh, I think I broke my ankle. <laughs> and uh, she was, of course, very worried. She flew out to be with me. But when I was in the emergency room, and even when I was lying on the sidewalk waiting for the ambulance to come, uh, and my foot was turned at a 90 degree angle from how it should be. It was it was a very bad uh, break. Um, it was physically very painful, but because of this practice and because of the philosophy of Vedanta that I've been uh, adopting and following, I was able to detach myself from that experience. I could say, okay, I am not this physical body. Uh, pain is something I'm feeling right now, but it doesn't have to define me. And I, I, I could very easily have sat and pitied myself to, okay, I'm missing the conference, my foot hurts, how much is this going to cost? You know, all of those thoughts come to your mind. And I began the practice of, I, I began sort of observing the pain in my foot as though I was looking at something from a very great distance, right? It was, it was on the horizon, but it was over there and I was over here. And the pain, it, it was still present, but uh, I won't say it diminished the pain, but I was able to ignore the pain uh, to a very great extent. And then when I was in the emergency room, the doctors and nurses were all very shocked because they saw what terrible condition my foot was in. And they said, but you're so cheerful. I was joking with them. Uh, one of the nurses looked like Freddie Mercury, and I told him that. And then they all started laughing. They said, don't tell him that. He'll be thinking about that for a month. And, and I mean, we were you know, making jokes and just being you know, uh, lighthearted because... I could have been angry, I could have been fearful, I could have been sad, 
But would that have helped? Would that have aided the healing process of my foot? No. So be as happy as you can in the moment. Um, and I think that if I had not been meditating for the past 20 years, um, I don't think that would have been such an easy thing for me to do. Uh, I think I would have been much more frightened. I would have been much more anxious and worried and I would have suffered much more, you know, uh, and this is something I said to the doctors and nurses, I said, pain is in the body, but suffering is in the mind. And you can't choose what's happening to your body all the time, but you can choose your mental reaction to it. And meditation strengthens our ability to do that. That practice every day of shutting off the thoughts is just like physical exercise. The more you do it, the easier it becomes to direct your attention to where you want it to be. So that's that's a long rambling answer to your question, but I no, that's I fascinating. That's fascinating. I, I I just want to conclude with one question, and and this is such a beautiful point to sort of you know wrap up our conversation. It seems to me that a lot of people are worried about sort of you know going in towards an inner path because you know they consider themselves spiritual but not religious. You know, organized religion turns off a lot of people, and it seems to me that what you're suggesting is in a sense for a lot of people who are worried or, or ang anxious about organized religion or, and being, be, being part of it, this is a far more individualistic, this is a far more, um, you know, centered towards the individual, uh, a journey inside rather than being part of anything that is a, a group activity or, or part of, you know, um, another identity marker, so to speak. So perhaps the time for such a journey has come for everybody around the world. Yes, we can hope so. And uh, this is something, yes, you can do by yourself. Uh, if you're not comfortable with religious labels and religious identities and all of the issues that come with that, just think of it as your personal practice. And uh, I'm going to shut everything off and be by myself now for some time. Uh, I find, uh, and of course I study religion for a living, so I find the religious traditions to be a very rich source of a vocabulary that helps me articulate this experience. And I, I, quote, the, I quote the Upanishads and I quote from Swamiji, I quote from the Buddha and so forth. But I like the idea of maybe we could call it uh, religion with open borders or uh, um, yeah. I have a friend, uh, Jerry Martin, who talks about something called theology without walls. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea or, or open source, I've heard the term used, uh, people have called the Hindu tradition an open source tradition. Yes, because I have used it myself, an open source religion, so to speak. Yeah. I probably got that from you, actually. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, because yeah. there's no one dictating to you, you must do it this way and you must, you know, uh, there are guidelines, there are teachers. Some people find it beneficial to meditate in a group. I find when I meditate in a group, I meditate a little more deeply um, than uh, I might on my own. Uh, but yes, it's, it is very individualized and it, it's something that someone can do without, uh, you know, quote unquote, changing sides, right? You don't have to subscribe to a particular religion or to a particular belief system because ultimately what you're going to experience is an experience. And it's not it, once you have that experience, you're, it's not about believing something. It's it's knowledge because, well, I know just like I know, you know, that I've walked to the mailbox so many times. Uh, I know, you know, certain things about the self because uh, I've experienced the self. Fascinating. I want to conclude by uh, or with a point that you made a little while ago when you said that 
somebody who tried meditation for the first time came back and said you know it it i felt very happy but it was weird <laughs> it is a bit of an odd moment uh, you know professor it seems to me that um the experience of true happiness might today uh you know for many people seem a bit weird because we're not accustomed to it right. perhaps the time has and come and isn't that for tragic you know reconnect that, that, it is truly true tragic. happiness and bliss uh, is strange and and perhaps uh, it, they they ought not be strangers anymore perhaps do you would you say that oh, please, now is the time the time has come for us not to be strangers with with the experience of true happiness yes i i strongly agree with that i strongly agree with that and strangers to ourselves because if you strip away everything else that's what is left that bliss that's a that's a really wonderful note professor uh to conclude this conversation uh it's been really enriching and enlightening talking to you thank you very much for your time thank you and i hope we all find the bliss within thank you hindo thank you so much for having me thank you